This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In April 2006, the Institute held a two-day symposium about copyright and intellectual property, titled Comedies of Fair Use. The event began with a keynote address by Lawrence Lessig, who currently teaches at Harvard Law School. Lessig is the author of 12 books, and his work has had an enormous impact on discussions of intellectual property and, more recently, the challenge institutional corruption presents to democracy. This is a particularly interesting time, I think, to be discussing intellectual property issues. As Yochai Benkler, in his extraordinary new book, The Wealth of Networks, writes, at the beginning of the 21st century, we find ourselves in the midst of a battle over the institutional ecology of the digital environment. How these battles turn out over the next decade or so will likely have a significant effect on how we come to know what is going on in the world we occupy and to what extent we will be able to affect how we and others see the world as it is and as it might be. Fair use is at the heart of the Constitution's protection of intellectual property. The law protects only a conditional right of ownership, and fair use is one of the main factors determining how well intellectual property, books, articles, plays, music, art, photography, film, function in everyday life. As I quickly learned when I started writing about these debates, one of the paradoxes of any discussion of intellectual property and fair use in particular, is that almost nobody, at least on the record, is against fair use. And what's more, two people looking at the same instance of fair use may come to completely different conclusions about whether or not it's useful, legal, or effective. So according to the letter of the law, the rights of artists, parodists, critics, to make fair use of intellectual property is guaranteed, but in practice, as we uh, often discover, these rights are ambiguously drawn and the property so zealously defended that they are prohibitively expensive to exercise. Can an artist who spends a fortune on legal fees successfully defending his legitimate fair use of a copyrighted image really be said to have won his case? Is fair use in America no more than, quote, the right to hire a lawyer to defend your right to create, as our keynote speaker, Lawrence Lessig, has argued? Or is it a flawed but salvageable concept whose effectiveness requires simply that we vigorously and confidently employ it in everyday life. 
as Kembrew McLeod, another of our panelists, recommends in his book, Freedom of Expression, what I call the uh, use it or lose it doctrine. These are just some of the questions that we'll consider this weekend in panels on the state of fair use in music, film, art, and literature. I can think of no more appropriate speaker to start off than Lawrence Lessig. His work can be said to have inspired this entire conference. He's professor of law at Stanford and founder of the school's Center for Internet and Society. Prior to uh, coming to Stanford, he taught at uh, Harvard Law School and the University of Chicago. He clerked for Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Judge Scalia on the United States Supreme Court. He's the author of three books, the most recent of which is Free Culture, has inspired a movement of the same name, the Free Culture Movement, with chapters in over 100 college campuses, including this one. And we're going to be hearing from some of the Free Culture NYU members. He's as much an activist as a scholar, and his work with the Creative Commons, the Free Software Foundation, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the Public Library of Science has come a long way towards showing us what a viable alternative to the current copyright regime might look like. So I'm going to tell you something old, something new, something borrowed, and then I'm going to be very blue about the state of intellectual property law as it relates to fair use. So first, something old, something really old, something a century old. 1906, this man, John Philip Sousa, went to this place, the United States Congress, to talk about this technology, what he called the talking machines. Sousa was not a fan of talking machines. This is what he said. These talking machines are going to ruin artistic development of music in this country. When I was a boy, in front of every house in the summer evenings, you would find young people together singing songs of the day or the old songs. Today you hear these infernal machines going night and day. We will not have a vocal cord left, Sousa said. The vocal cords will be eliminated by a process of evolution, as was the tale of man when he came from the ape. Now, there are two elements of this I want you to keep in your head as I talk about this issue. The first is this picture. Young people together singing the songs of the day or the old songs. And the second is this image vocal cords, people using their capacity to speak and create culture, to participate actively and creatively in the production of culture. They have a role in this image, in the production and sharing of culture. And in the sense of modern computer technology, we could call this kind of culture a read-write culture. Right, so Sousa was fearful that this read-write capacity would be lost and lost because of these infernal machines. It would be displaced, this practice of people producing and sharing culture. It would be displaced because people depend, it depends upon these vocal cords being exercised. And if it's lost, then we could say using again modern computer technology, we would become a read only culture, a culture where creativity is consumed, no doubt, but the consumer is not himself a creator. Culture in this sense is top-down, it's read-only, in the sense that technologies facilitate access in a read-only way. 
Now, if we look back in the developed world over the last century, the 20th century, it's pretty clear that John Philip Sousa was right about these technologies. Never before in the history of human culture was the production of culture as concentrated. Never before had it been as professionalized. Never before had creativity of individuals been as effectively displaced, displaced by these, quote, infernal machines. Now, in this story, this progress of culture that Sousa described and celebrated, we could ask the question, where was copyright? Where was the regime of regulation called copyright in the era that Sousa romanticized? And that answer was given to us by about 12 years ago by an extraordinary law professor, Jessica Littman, describing the evolution of copyright law in a paper titled Exclusive Right to Read. This is what Jessica wrote. At the turn of the century, last century, US copyright law was technical, inconsistent, and difficult to understand. But, she says, it didn't apply to very many people or very many things. If you produced these things, then you were regulated by the law of copyright. But if you did these things, you were booksellers, piano roll maker, phonograph record publisher, motion picture publisher, musician, scholar, member of Congress, or importantly, ordinary citizen, the law didn't regulate you. Life in those spheres was copyright free. You could go through life, Jessica said, quote, without ever encountering a copyright problem. How is that possible? Or why was it the case that you could go through life without encountering such a problem? And the answer, the obvious answer, is the use of culture in that time didn't itself trigger copyright. The architecture of copyright was that not all uses of copyright works trigger copyright or at least not all uses did trigger copyright. That's an obvious point. Let's make it as obvious as I can. Think about books in the old analog world. If these are all the possible uses of a book, an important set of these uses are technically unregulated by the law, free uses. So if you read a book, that's not a fair use of the book. It's a free use of the book because reading a book produces no copy. If you give someone a book, that's not a fair use of the book. It's a free use of the book. Giving someone a book produces no copy. If you sell a book explicitly in American law after the initial distribution, that's free of the regulation of copyright law because selling a book doesn't produce a copy. If you sleep on a book in the American tradition, this use of the work is not itself a trigger of copyright law, free of the regulation of copyright law. These uses are unregulated in our tradition. Then at the core of the possible uses of this creative work are a set of uses that are properly regulated by the law, regulated to give an incentive to the author to produce great new work. So you want to publish the book, you need permission of the copyright owner, and so should you have to get permission because that type of incentives is necessary, in many cases at least, to produce the incentives to produce great new works. And then in the American tradition, there's a thin sliver of exceptions, which we call fair uses. Uses which otherwise would have been regulated by the law, but which the law says ought to remain free because it's important to cultural development that they be free. So you can take my most recent book, Free Culture, you can quote it in an absolutely idiotic review, and I guarantee that's possible. I've got many examples I can show you. You can quote my words for the purpose of destroying me or whatever purpose you want, and there's nothing I can do about that, even though you're copying my words. 
because the law says that use ought to remain free. So in this world, there are three kinds of uses, regulated uses, fair uses, and free uses. And the world of possible uses of copyright law is the copyrighted works is divided among these three. Now think in Sousa's sense, the activities he was romanticizing were the activities that operated in that world in the free space. Copyright law regulated in that world commercial activity, important commercial activity, though a small important commercial activity. You could either say that it regulated a small industry that was an important industry, or you could say it was an important regulation of a small industry. Either way, the important point was it did not regulate consumers in the way consumers used and built upon culture. That's the old, here's the new. So we talk about something new, we've gotta be talking about the internet, and I wanna talk in part about the internet. I wanna talk about internet culture. I wanna to suggest to you we're seeing two very different internet cultures develop. This is the distinction now Sousa gave us, I suggest, between the read-only and read-write internet culture. So first, the read-only culture. This is the culture extraordinarily empowered by these technologies, enabling people to buy and consume culture produced elsewhere. Massively efficient technologies to facilitate access to culture created elsewhere. The poster child of this form of cultural creativity is the Apple Corporation. With its iTunes music store for 99 cents, you can buy music efficiently, download it to your iPod and only your iPod. But if you download it to your iPod, then you're guaranteed in our culture right now to be certified cool. And it's not just music, of course. Apple's now doing the same thing with videos that you can download to their iPod for $1.99. And it's not just Apple, it's others too. Amazon's experimenting with a pay-per-page way of selling books. Ebook companies have all, for a long time, experimented with the pay-per-read way of selling ebooks. In all of these cases, what's happening is the technology is being developed to increasingly perfect the control copyright owners have over how people consume culture. That's the read-only internet. It's the perfection, you might say, of the couch potato culture, now digitized. Now, in contrast to that cultural form, there's another very important form of cultural creativity called the read-write internet. This is the internet being built by companies like these. This is, of course, an internet where people consume culture, but it's also a network where they consume and create and then share their creativity with others. Let me give you some examples so we all know the sort of stuff I'm talking about here. There's this new form of expression called anime music videos. Anime music videos take anime, you all have seen these, these extraordinary Japanese cartoons, and then the creator takes either DVDs of these that he or she has bought or downloaded off the internet, and then re-edits them, re-edits the image to set them to music. These are creators, right? You could say they're re-creators, and you might think to yourself as extraordinary Japanese, but the reality here is these are not Japanese creators primarily. These are primarily Americans, literally tens of thousands spread across the country who operate within communities creating and then sharing this creativity, sometimes 400 to 600 hours per video created, this kind of re-creativity is a celebration of the capacity, the power of this technology being practiced all across the country right now. And of course, it's not just anime music videos where this kind of creativity is 
demonstrated. You all know this album by the Beatles called The White Album, which then inspired this album by Jay-Z called The Black Album, which then inspired this album by Danger. Danger. 2004, the film Tarnation made its debut at Cannes, said by the BBC to wow Cannes. This was a film made for $218. The kid took video that he had shot through his whole life and using an iMac given to him by a friend, he remixed it of quality to wow Khan and win the 2004 Los Angeles International Film Festival. And maybe perhaps most important has been the expression of this form of creativity in the context of politics. Let me ask you a question. I just know how this world works. I see on the TV screens how hard it is. We're making progress. It is hard work. You know, it's hard work. It's hard work. A lot of really good people working hard. They can do the hard work. That's what distinguishes us from the enemy. And it's hard work, but it's necessary work, and that's essential. But again, I want to tell the American people, it's hard work. It is hard work. It's hard work. There was no doubt in my mind that's necessary work. I understand how hard it is. That's my job. No doubt about it. It's tough. It's hard work, which I really want to do, but I would hope I'd never have to. Nothing wrong with that. But again, I repeat to my fellow citizens, we're making progress. We're making progress there. I reject this notion. It's ludicrous. It is hard work. It's hard work. That's the plan for victory, and that is the best way. What I said was, it's hard work, and made that very clear. This is read-write culture in a digital age, right? It's an expression, a continuation of what Sousa spoke of digitized. And it is an increasingly important important way in which many people communicate and think, especially our kids. Indeed, it is a literacy now for our kids. It is an expression of a form of writing, but writing with different technology. Pew did a study estimating 57% of teenagers had created and shared content on the internet. 57%. That's not peer-to-peer -peer downloaders. That's about 99%. But people creating content themselves and sharing it on the internet. This is increasingly how they speak and think. And it's extraordinary in the democratic capacity it gives. For nothing I've described here couldn't have been done by a television station for the last 50 years. The difference here is that anyone with a $1,500 computer can begin to take sounds and images from the culture around us and remix them in a way that speaks and critiques differently. Now, some people look at this and they say, wow, this is magically new. But is there anything really new in this? My view is that there's, in fact, nothing important that's new. And I'm going to invoke the authority for the evening. Siva wrote this about this question. In one sense, such widespread democratic cultural production, peer-to-peer -peer production, one might say, seems less than revolutionary. It merely echoes how cultural texts have flowed through and been revised by discursive communities everywhere for centuries. The point is it's the same kind of speech that people engaged in before, before they had the technology to make it expressed. It's just different technology facilitating this kind of speech in an expression that can be shared with many more. It is differently empowered speech, changing. The freedom to speak by changing the power to speak, spreading it differently, continuing and extending Sousa's romanticized vision of how cultural production could happen. Now think about the difference between this read-only and read-write culture from the perspective of copyright law. What's copyright law's view on these two forms of expression? First, the read-only. Internet. Copyright law fundamentally supports the read-only internet. Copyright law supports the legal claims of the read-only internet. 
It exports the legal claims for perfect control over how culture gets spread. Importantly, it hasn't always exercised that kind of control. In the old world, the analog world, copyrights regulation was actually quite limited and incomplete. Remember this picture of the balance between regulated, unregulated, and fair uses of works. In that world, it wasn't the case that copyright owners had the legal power. They couldn't legally control the uses of creative work because the law just didn't give them that right. These important uses were free. But in the digital world, this balance has been radically changed. In part, it's the change of the law, though I don't think that's the important part. It's not just the law that's changed. In the digital world, the real change is the consequence of the change in technology. This is the difference between the analog and digital world. If copyright at its core regulates something called copies, then the one thing we know about a digital world is that every single use of creative work in a digital world produces a copy. Every use triggers copyright law. Thus, every use triggers a presumption of permission. We go from this balanced view to this view merely because the technology through which we get access to culture has changed. There's a presumption of regulation now that extends broadly to everything automatically after the change of the law in 1976. And this law is now supplemented by technologies that add another dollop of control on top of the control expressed in the law, technologies called digital rights management technologies, designed again to increasingly perfect the control of how culture gets consumed. That's the read-only culture and its relationship to the law. What about the read-write culture and its relationship to the law? Well, here, copyright law simply conflicts with the read-write culture. This read-write culture, where the every use is a copy, produces this presumptive regulation of everything here. And in the read-write culture, this presumptive regulation means it's presumptively illegal. The existing rules in this world require permission, and this permission is just not coming. So AMV sites are increasingly getting notice and takedowns from the music record labels who don't like their free promotion of this underlying creative work. DJ Danger Mouse knew the Beatles never give permission to allow their work to be remixed in any form. This kid, after he wowed Khan for $218, then discovered it would cost over $400,000 to clear the rights to the music in the background of the video that he had shot when he was growing up. And this is my favorite example. You want to get a clue about how weird we lawyers can be. I don't care what you think about Tony Blair and President Bush. I don't care what you think about the war. I might have a sense of what you think, but I don't care about it. The one thing you can't say about that clip is what the lawyers said when they were asked for permission to synchronize that music with those images. The lawyer said, no, you may not have permission because, quote, it's not funny, end quote. <laughs> So the point is the existing system demands this system of permission. It was not built for the idea of a read-write culture where the power to create has been spread to the millions who have access to this technology to create. This culture is not permissible under this structure of regulation, and the regulation will then drive it either underground or away. So that's the part new. Here's the part borrowed. Ideas borrowed from many of my colleagues who've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. This is a conference about fair use. I'm the keynote. 
you'll be surprised to hear I'm against it. I'm against fair use. It's not that I think it's a bad thing. I think the world with fair use is better than the world without it. But what I'm against is the way fair use shifts the focus of the debate from important questions that we ought to be thinking about as we recognize the way digital technologies has changed the way culture gets regulated. For example, it shifts attention away from this important category of free use of creative work. Right? In the past, this was the picture, regulated, fair, and free uses. But in a world where every use is a copy, these free uses become presumptively regulated uses. And when we talk about fair use, we don't spend enough time talking about why the hell should I have to justify any freedom to use this at all? Now, in this world, it's a very bad thing that the debate focuses itself purely on these legal questions. And it's a very bad thing that the law regulates as broadly and presumptively as it does. Again, Jessica Littman updating the story she told about the beginning of the century. 90 years later, the United States copyright law is even more technical, inconsistent, and difficult to understand. More importantly, it touches everyone and everything. Most of us can no longer spend even an hour without colliding with copyright law. And the point is that this discussion of fair use obscures this fundamental change, this fundamental question that we should be asking here, which is the question, why should this use have regulation at all? The second important question I think the fair use debate deflects us from is the costs of a system of fair use to the opportunity for lots of creativity to be produced. Fair use in this sense invokes what's referred to as this four-factor balancing test. The Supreme Court has repeatedly instructed lower courts not to make it too easy. They must weigh all factors together. We can't have any clear, simple rules here. Instead, it must require this process of balancing in order to stay pure to the ideals of fair use. But this is a system. It is a law written for lawyers. It is a complex and uncertain system, which I view as harmless in the world where it's primarily big companies dealing and struggling with how the law regulates creativity. Who cares? In fact, I produce lawyers for a living. I love the idea of laws that make it so we need to hire more lawyers. And where companies can afford it, we shouldn't worry about that type of regulation. Because as it's applied just by lawyers, it can rationally regulate in the scope of spaces that should be regulated. But the point is, now this reaches far beyond lawyers. It's everyone using a computer to create and share content that must now think about this four-factor balancing test. And what lawyers don't get in this debate is that this uncertainty, this requirement of lawyers, is harmful to markets. Indeed, lawyers, in this sense, can be said to kill certain markets for creativity because of the uncertainty they bring into the process. So for example, you're going to see this book around a lot soon, building on an article written by my boss at Wired, Chris Anderson, called The Long Tail. The Long Tail is this really fascinating account of how commerce has developed in the digital age. And the basic intuition is, in the analog space, in the real world, the head of the long tail is primarily what the market serves. So Barnes & Noble, in physical space, can carry about 100,000 books. 
and those 100,000 books is all it can afford to carry because if it carried more, the cost of carrying the book would be greater than the value of carrying those books. But in the internet space, the sales extend far down the tail. So in the internet space, Amazon can sell not only what Barnes & Noble can keep in physical space, but also everything else they can keep in their warehouses. Now the question to ask about that tail is what's the size of the tail? How valuable is it to the market? And as Anderson reports, looking at some long tail industries, for example, Netflix earns 21% of its revenue from the sort of things that would never be carried by a physical world company. Amazon earns 25% of its revenues from the sort of books that could never be carried from in a physical space company. Rhapsody, online music, sells 40% of its music is music that would never be carried by CD record stores around the country. The point is, this extraordinarily important new opportunity for commerce comes from the easy ability of the market to move down the tail. Now, as you move down the tail, the important question becomes, what interferes with the long tail? What makes it harder for the long tail to succeed? And in an extremely important part of this book, Chris talks about the way rights can interfere with the long tail. This is a passage from his book. Fewer than a dozen of the 6,000 films submitted to the Sundance Film Festival each year are picked up for distribution, but most of the rest cannot be legally shown outside of a festival because their music rights have not been cleared. Likewise, for TV programming and the network's archives, it's too expensive to clear the DVD or streaming distribution rights to the music. This is one aspect of the cost of rights, and the point is a system that imposes these rights in this contest necessarily destroys part of the market for this long tail distribution. If you create uncertainty about rights here, you can kill or drive out all sorts of creativity, in particular in the one part of the market unique to the net, namely the long tail. This too is something that fair use talk obscures. It ignores the way the system of regulation can systematically drive out of the marketplace extremely valuable parts of the market. And finally, this talk of fair use is systematically blind to the strategic games that are played in the context where use rights need to be sought to use important aspects of culture. This is Judge Posner, typically a sweet man. Um, he wrote a very nasty review of something my friend Jeff Rosen once wrote, where Jeff Rosen was repeating a story that I had told about a filmmaker who was blocked from using three seconds of a Simpsons cartoon appearing in a television screen in the background to a shot he was making. And this filmmaker was told by Fox it would cost $10,000 to clear those three seconds, and the filmmaker, documentary filmmaker couldn't afford it, so he had to cut the scene from the film. Rosen told that story. And Posner wrote a scathing review of his account saying that's ridiculous, that's obviously fair use. And the idea that to suggest that it wouldn't be fair use is just not to understand the way the law actually functions. So I wrote Dick Posner a letter and I said, Dick, you know, you spend a lot of time criticizing people for being insufficiently empirical. So I suggest you go out and look at the way practice actually is in the fair use market. And to his credit, he did. And he published an article last year with Bill Poutry called Fair Use and Statutory Reform in the Wake of Eldred. And it's filled with the discovery he made of the systematic overclaiming that's made in the context of fair use rights debates in the context of the market. So for example, he says, 
The Copyright Society of the USA advises on its websites that copying even of just a few seconds of a movie is illegal, says Posner, quote, that is not the law. Or recently, the New York Review of Book published a newly discovered notebook entry by Virginia Woolf, and a note at the end of the article states, quote, copyright 2003 by the estate of Virginia Woolf, no part of this text may be reprodu reproduced without the express prior consent of uh, Hesperus Press, no part, Posner asks, that is ridiculous, he says. Or in Margaret Atwood's recent novel, Oryx and Craig, the author thanks John Calder Publications and Grove Atlantic for the permission to quote eight words from a Samuel Beckett novel. Eight words, Posner asks, please, right? So the point is, Posner has recognized and describes at length the incentives that get built into the system to overclaim and the costs that that overclaiming has on the opportunity for other authors to build upon and extend earlier work. But what Posner misses in this count is another way in which these strategic costs begin to matter. So for example, this man, Robert Greenwald, in 2002, released this film uncovered the whole truth of the Iraq war. Well, as it promised to be the whole truth, as more of the truth got revealed about the Iraq war, Robert Greenwald decided he wanted to update the film. So in 2004, he wanted to use one minute of this man's words about why he went to war, appearing on a NBC television show. One minute of the president explaining the most important decision any president ever makes. NBC responded to the request by saying, no, you can't use the one minute. When the agent working for Robert Greenwald asked NBC why, the first response, and I guarantee you it was quickly withdrawn, but the first response to that question was, well, we don't think it's very flattering to the president. Or again, I've been involved in a number of movies recently that have attempted to get the 2000 election coverage. Remember the election coverage where network said, it's Al Gore, then they shifted to it's President Bush. Every one of these films has been denied permission to use these clips from these programs. And the most recent of these denials was given to a film where the woman who is the director for this film was a very close friend to the agent who actually did the denial and said, why is it that we can't get access to this? And what she said, was you have to understand if we give you permission, independent of whether you use it, if we give you permission, we will be, quote, cut off in Washington from access in the way in which we get to report on the news. Now the point is the fuzziness of the line, the inherent feature the Supreme Court insists upon helps the strategic value of this threat. It provides a certain kind of leverage. And again, my view is when we defend this freedom in the name of fair use, we begin to miss this cost too. So what's to be done? Well, here's where I get really blue, as if I've not been blue enough. I have no idea what we can do about this problem right now. The system, as it functions against the background of these technologies, the system, by which I mean not the idea of copyright. I think copyright is essential in a digital age. The system of fair use as it functions against this background of technology is, in my view, simply ridiculous. It's a ridiculous system for regulating this kind of speech. But the problem we have is that we live in a culture where to question the way intellectual property law functions 
is to be referred to, as I've been called a number of times two years ago by Mr. Gates, as a, quote, communist. There's a kind of IP McCarthyism that governs this debate. So the very idea that you suggest ways to move the debate along to facilitate both the necessary incentives copyright owners need and the creative space that creators need is just off the table in most policy contexts in Washington. So long as we live inside this system where our only grounds to argue for freedom is this insanity of fair use, we need to fight for it. So important works, for example, by these people in producing the best practices and fair use guide for documentary filmmakers is extraordinarily important in advancing the debate about what practices are necessary to assure the freedom filmmakers have. At Stanford, we have a project called the Fair Use Project that systematically takes cases of overclaiming and files reverse lawsuits against the overclaimer, demanding that they justify their restriction of speech in the name of fair use. And we've begun developing the idea of something like a free speech insurance co-op. One of the most important restrictions on filmmakers being able to use material in their films is that they need errors and emissions insurance if they're going to distribute their films. The E&O insurers want to have nothing to do with films that claim fair use as a ground for the use of clips in their films. It's just too dangerous. So we're, just, we're exploring the idea of insurance contracts that exempt what we think of as free speech components from the liability the insurance company creates, and then creating a parallel insurance project which would insure for those claims and then draw upon the extraordinary range of legal resources that are out there that want to defend free speech rights in this context, to both cover fair use and also libel claims as they relate to people's documentary filmmakers' desire to put this speech out there. But in my view, what we really need is somehow to escape the insanity of this particular way of regulating access to speech. Copyright law of course, is necessary and important. It provides necessary commercial incentives to an extraordinarily important set of cultural creativity. But it shouldn't extend beyond what's necessary. Indeed, it's harmful when it extends beyond what's necessary, as any speech regulation is. And what we need here is not just the regulation-free zone that, in theory, fair use gives us. What we need here is a lawyer-free zone, which in practice gives creators a clear line so that they know what their freedoms are without requiring the heavy, expensive burden of the law. We need to carve back, in my view, the scope of this speech regulation to just that which is necessary, leaving the rest of this speech free. And what happens if we don't? Well, I'm sure in the full range of issues, there are many things that I and my friend Jack Valenti agree on. Um, but the one thing we really do agree on is the cost of this current war around issues related to copyright. The cost of this current war, as Jack puts it, is the production of a generation of criminals. He gives speeches all over the country about the morality expressed in the practices kids engage in as they use speech contrary to the law. And he talks about the corrosion that this practice has on important values within our society. And I agree with Valencia. I agree that we're producing a generation of kids 
which even more than mine and even more than the ones before, look to the law and think of the law as just an ass, who ignore the law whenever they can, avoid the law whenever they can, disengage from the idea that the law matters, ought to be respected, because of course any sensible person can see the law is a fool. Now there is great harm that is produced by this attitude. Great harm to the rule of law itself in a democracy. That harm is much more significant than the profits from any particular industry involved in this, quote, war. And in my view, we need the change in the law to render these practices no longer illegal. A change to make this creative, productive, critical speech legal again. Who would have thought that in 2006, it was interesting to stand up and say that we ought to, in our tradition, once again, make speech legal? Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute of Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.